0: Good morning everybody, great to see you today, Um, you may be seated, I'll I'll just say uh, what what an amazing thing to be in Houston as a Yankees fan and uh, I'll tell you how bad it is, before Altuve's home run last night, I had a full head of hair, (laughs) that's how bad it is. And I appreciate the fact that no one is rubbing this in. Because you know Yankees fans are typically humble, kind, gentle, turn the other cheek. Listen, if I'm gonna be in Houston when the Yankees get beat by the Astros, I will tell you this. From my, I've had the opportunity to be in Houston a lot over the years. I'd rather not be any place in in Houston, except Inspire Church this morning. It's, It's a privilege to be here. It really is a privilege to be here. Um, I've enjoyed my time the last couple of days with all the men in the men's conference. Um, I, as, as Pastor Steve mentioned, one of my heroes in ministry for many years has been uh, Bishop Richard Hurd. Uh, back in the early days when we were a small new church in a suburb of New York City, Pastor Hurd would come and preach and encourage us, and and uh, it's just it's an honor to to be here and to have an opportunity, hopefully, to say some things that'll be meaningful to all of you. Uh, Pastor Hurd called me this morning from India, and he's one of those guys. He has presence even on a cell phone. All the way from India, you know, you feel honored to be in his presence, and he's a continent, a continent's away, I guess. And so I, I honor Pastor Hurd and his family. Steve Miller is a dear friend for many years. Uh, he and Stephen have been at at our church uh, several times, even in recent years. Our our church loves them, and uh, they represent all of you at Inspire Church so well. So I'm going to jump in, and I'm, I'm going to share a message today that that I I hope on one hand celebrates who this church already is and encourages each of us as individuals to be even more intentional around what it means to welcome strangers. So so let let me let me start by telling you that a a couple of summers ago, my wife Sharon and our then 28-year-old son Caleb visited Paris, France, and we enjoyed the city's rich history and visited a number of museums, and we also enjoyed some wonderful meals, including on one evening a beautiful dinner at the Eiffel Tower Terrace Restaurant. Well, it so happens that the week before in Paris, France, there had been a series of terrible terrorist attacks. And in fact, the Eiffel Tower had been shut down for several days. So when we sat there enjoying this beautiful meal, there was a palpable sense of terrorist threat that hung over the city. You could almost cut it with a with a with a knife. Uh, but we enjoyed a beautiful meal while still having this awareness of concern in the midst of the kind of the center of the terror threat in Europe at that time. After the meal, uh, we w- went to the street where thousands of people were milling around from all over the world, and I wasn't paying much attention as my son Caleb called for an Uber. I just heard my wife say, Here's our Uber, let's get in. And uh, both of them were ahead of me. My son jumped into the passenger side door in front, my wife jumped in the seat behind him, and I was getting in to the door, to the seat behind the driver when all of a sudden my wife and son started shouting, get out, get out. I wasn't even in in yet, but somehow I got out and all of a sudden that supposedly Uber took off with siren blaring and sirens started screaming from all over that area of Paris, France. And I said to my my son, what in the world just happened? And he said, as I got in and sat down, I looked at the driver and I said, are you our Uber? And he said, he smiled at me and reached under the seat and pulled out a siren and put it on the dashboard and said, no, I'm this. To which my son then said, get out, get out. And we did. So here's what struck me in that moment. So this French policeman in the middle of a city on high alert and on the verge of police action in the epicenter of terrorist activity in Europe somehow assumed the best about the strangers who unexpectedly piled in his car on that Paris street. Now, my son is a good looking kid, but he's physically imposing, a big guy, a former college football tight end. He's a, he lives in Hollywood and he's a director, writer, and sometimes actor. And he had just starred on a guest, uh, as, as, a, as, a, as a guest on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., where he played the bad guy. And he played the bad guy very, very well. My point is that the response of this policeman is this young man came jumping in his car unexpectedly could have been dramatically different. We laugh about this story now, but of course, it could have had a terribly different ending. At some point, it occurred to me how different our world would be if each of us assumed the best when we encountered a stranger. Or even when a stranger imposed themselves on us in some strange way, especially when our background and experiences might give us cause to be angry or afraid or to react in some negative way. I'm talking about the multitude of encounters we have with people who are not like us or are not familiar to us, people who in our societal climate might arouse suspicion. Those we might instinctively keep at a distance and feel the need even perhaps to protect ourselves from strangers. This is what I wanna talk about today. I believe that we can overcome division in our world, in our homes, in our communities, and our churches, and more, if we simply would practice the scriptural admonition to welcome the stranger. The author of the New Testament letter to the Hebrews taught us to remember, to welcome strangers, because some who have done this have welcomed angels without knowing it. Another translation has it like this. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Now let me define terms here just for a moment so we're all on the same page. A stranger, for the purpose of this discussion, is anyone who seems strange to you or... To whom you may seem strange. A stranger is anyone who seems strange to you or to whom you may seem strange. This could be someone you do not know or to, who does not know you, whose background, worldview, or lifestyle may seem strange to you. A stranger could also be someone that you, who you do know, but who is from a different nation of origin, or race, or ethnicity. Someone maybe from a different socioeconomic or educational status. Or someone who, who if you're a follower of Jesus, someone who doesn't believe in Jesus yet. A stranger could be uh, a Yankees fan. The big idea of stranger is this person to whom you seem strange or who is strange to you, but you can extrapolate back from that a more simple way of viewing this, though it's not what I'm going to focus on today. A, 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 A stranger during some seasons could be your spouse. After all, the Bible says men are from Mars and women are from Venus. I guess it's not the Bible that says that. I just concerned some of you, didn't I? You thought, what does this guy know? I think an author named John Gray said that. At, at some seasons of life, a stranger could be your teenage child. A stranger is anyone you feel is even just sometimes strange to you. Now, let me, let me pause for a moment before I really dig into this. Well, let me first of all ask you, is everybody doing okay? You're thinking, here we've got this Yankee who's a Yankees fan standing up. They're all bald-headed, and we're concerned he might bore us to tears. Give me a few minutes, and I, I think that I won't, okay? Um, but let, let me just say that, that uh, uh, I feel so strongly about this subject that uh, I wrote uh, an entire section in uh, my new book, The Hospitable Leader, about it. And this is part of why I was invited to speak here today, was to share uh, the message of this book with the people at Inspire Church. That's why I mention it. Uh, So I wrote this book called The Hospitable Leader, Create Environments Where People and Dreams Flourish. And I define a hospitable leader like this. Now, just spend a moment on this but I want to do this so I can locate my message today in this bigger concept that you might want to revisit. A hospitable leader is anyone who creates environments of welcome where moral leadership can more effectively influence an ever-expanding diversity of people. All right, so a hospitable leader creates environments where all kinds of different people want to hang out so that they can come under the influence of someone who's gonna lead them to good and beautiful things. So this book is organized into five welcomes. The first welcome is called Home. It's about how to create environments where people's hearts are warm and where they can more easily be led to good and beautiful things. The second welcome is called Strangers. I'm gonna tease that a little bit today uh, in this talk. Uh, The third welcome is called Dreams. Hospitable leaders are hospitable to people and their dreams. The fourth welcome is called Communication. Hospitable communicators, create safe places where life-changing truth can be spoken. And the fifth welcome is called feast. I like to talk about how hospitable leaders create environments that feel like a feast to their followers. And my model of a hospitable leader is Jesus. I don't have time to get into it now except to say that he was constantly creating places where people felt welcome and where he could influence them with truth. See, I think that all of us lead somewhere or should, should. We should all be exercising influence. The most important leaders in the world are parents, but, but it's more than that. It's parents, teachers, little league coaches, ministry leaders, the CEOs of major corporations. This book is for people who want to influence others to good and beautiful things. And I'm blessed that, that it's, it's, it, the book's been very well received and it's been endorsed by people like, uh, I'll just mention two, like uh, Jack Welch, the CEO, former CEO of General Electric. The largest corporation of the world who doesn't endorse books but endorsed this and called this a meaningful new approach to leadership, or more importantly, Yankees chaplain Willie Alfonso and a lot of other people. And i love to have an opportunity to meet you, to sign a book for you, and hopefully for this to help you get better at life and leadership. Now, let's dig in here to three keys to unlock the power of welcoming strangers. Three keys to unlock the power of welcoming strangers. Here's the first one. It's to see the angel in every stranger. Say this with me if you would. Say, see the angel in every stranger. So let's go back to our text. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 1 tells us, keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. And then verse two says, remember to welcome strangers because some who have done this have welcomed angels without knowing it. I love the progression in this passage. Hebrews 13, one tells us to keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. How, how, how many of you know that it's difficult enough to practice that as well as we should? keep on loving each, maybe some of you don't have the same kind of issues that we have in New Jersey, but I've learned leading especially an incredibly diverse congregation that sometimes we're challenged enough to keep on loving each other as brothers and sisters. Now, the word, the Greek word that's translated love your brothers and sisters or brotherly love is the word Philadelphia. You're familiar with the word Philadelphia. And you know that Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. So, first of all, we're told to go to a place called Philadelphia where we practice love of our brothers and sisters. I like to call Philadelphia home. And the fact is that we have to take care of home before we have anything of value to offer a stranger. And when I talk about home, I'm talking about the condition of our own souls. I'm talking about our own family, our own church. I'm talking about our communities, our businesses, wherever we have responsibility. I'm talking about our nation we have to take care of home in order to have anything of value to offer a stranger but we can't stop there so hebrews 13:1 says keep on practicing philadelphia but then it says and don't forget to welcome strangers now who are strangers for the purpose of this discussion it's people who are strange to us or to whom we seem strange Don't forget to welcome strangers because when you do that, the writer of the Hebrews says, you sometimes entertain strangers, or pardon me, angels unaware. Now, pardon the reference to Greek words, but this is kind of important, and I hope it'll help you remember it. Uh, the Greek word that's translated welcome strangers, or in some translations, be hospitable to strangers, or in the King James Version, entertain strangers, that Greek word is the word philoxenia. Philoxenia literally means to love a stranger to love a stranger. So we're told to begin in a place called Philadelphia but not to stay there because we are supposed to move from Philadelphia to Philoxenia. We're supposed to move from just practicing love for our brothers and sisters to practicing love for people who may not be our brothers and sisters. Xenophobia is the opposite of the word philoxenia. Xenophobia means an irrational, illogical fear of people who are not like you. And the fact is that followers of Jesus do not get to be afraid of strangers. We are commanded not only to take care of home, but to welcome the stranger And this is not just in this passage in Hebrews 13 1 and 2. The fact is we are told repeatedly in scripture to practice hospitality. By the way, do you know and and, to be hospitable literally means, it's philoxenia, it means to love a stranger. Do you know that leaders in the early Christian church were commanded as part of the requirements of leadership to be hospitable? That didn't just mean have a friend over to dinner, it literally means to love a stranger. A variety of New Testament scriptures tell us that a church leader must be hospitable or enjoy having guests in his home. He or she must be a lover of hospitality or a lover of loving strangers. Friends, we have to realize how much God loves the stranger and to feel God's heart for the stranger. All the way in the Old Testament through the writing of Moses, we're told the Lord's your God administers justice for the fatherless and widow and loves the stranger therefore moses said love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of egypt the principle is if you've received the grace of god even though you were estranged from god how can you not practice grace towards other people who seem strange to you In the New Testament, Jesus said that one of the ways he would welcome people into his eternal kingdom was to look at them and say, well done, good and faithful servant, and he offers several reasons they're being welcomed, and then he says, I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Now, here's part of what I've learned. When we entertain strangers, we often entertain angels unaware. Now, angel means messenger from God, and a good angel is a messenger from God. So important was what uh, biblical scholars call the law of hospitality that the Jewish people believed that God would literally send angels to test whether or not they were practicing it. Uh, A monk named Brother Jeremiah said, uh, we always treat guests as angels just in case. And the fact is, we could, in showing hospitality to a stranger, find out that we're literally entertaining an angel in the truest sense of the word. But in a more earthy way, and hear me, guys, as I begin to hopefully now kind of get past the technical side of this concept and begin to, to share my heart and what I hope and pray and believe is the heart of God, what I've experienced is that when I've opened my heart to people who are different from me, who are strange to me. They often are or become messengers from God. God uses them to impact my life and leadership in powerful ways. This is why I say we must see the angel in every stranger. Now there are many ways as to what it we could get at to talk about what it, what it is to love strangers and what it looks like for strangers to become messengers from God. But for me, the most significant way that I've practiced this is in, as of next Sunday, having led a church in a suburb of New York City for 28 years. It's a church and uh, inspired church can appreciate this like few churches in the world can. It's a church that some have called the most diverse church in America. It is it is, it is amazing in so many ways, uh, including the fact that there is not in our church a dominant racial group. Our church looks so much like this church, it's amazing to me. We have people from nations from all over the world and from, from all races and, and many, many ethnicities, but that's just the, the part of what the diversity of our church looks like. We are Pentecostals and Baptists and Presbyterians and Jesus-believing Catholics and Jewish believers and lots of previously unchurched people who've come to believe in Jesus and become a part of our church. We are rich and poor. We are lots of PhDs and we're GEDs. We're young and we're elderly. We are, and this is perhaps the most amazing thing to say in today's world we are Democrats and Republicans and Independents. And we are Yankees fans. I'm trying to think if there are Astros fans, but there are actually no Astros fans. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you something even more divisive. We are Yankees fans and we are Mets fans. You have to understand uh, how strange that is. Um, but, but for me, this, this has been an amazing journey for me. I, I don't, I, I'm going to talk about race just for a moment. I'm going to do it very cautiously. One of the most important things I've learned from the messengers from God that he's put in my life who come from different backgrounds than me is how much I thought I knew about this subject and in fact don't understand at all. If nothing else, I've come to understand how how ignorant, frankly, I am about other people's experiences and backgrounds and upbringings and worldviews. So I, I deal with this very cautiously, but I deal with it because this has been one of the most significant things that has happened in my life is I I've done life for 28 years with people who in all kinds of ways are not like me and who I am not like. And it has become for me the most beautiful thing in my life. You see a picture just last week. Uh, I'm, I'm actually sitting at the head of the table and this is most of our board and elders at the Life Christian Church. You get a little idea of who we are. These are the people who have the, 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 the legal oversight of our church and you'll see that it's, it's Indians and Filipinos and African Americans and, and uh, uh, Caucasians and women and you know, doctors and criminal defense attorneys and managing partners at huge firms And a Facebook executive and a professor and uh, uh, people from Wall Street, and all that just that there's a representation of who we are. What I'm trying to say to those of you who are living this out is how precious, how precious this experience is because if we'll pay attention and we'll be willing to go through what one needs to go through to actually welcome a stranger. How amazing it is when you find out that God brings these people who are not like you into your life and how that they change your life. I I am the most unlikely candidate in the world to uh, lead a diverse church. I'm a guy, I don't know if you noticed this, but I'm a white guy. Did you notice that? Very, very white guy. raised in a suburb of Indianapolis, Indiana, raised with people who pretty much were like me in every imaginable way. We went to the same kind of churches, we voted the same way, we, uh, I don't know, what do you wanna, we, we rooted for the same teams, we thought like each other. I mean, and the fact is, when I was a was a, a young guy entering into ministry, I didn't give any any thought to some of the things I'm talking about here. It wasn't that I, 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 I didn't care, I just, wasn't aware. It wasn't anything that that, that was a part of my life. And God calls me to begin leading a church uh, that at that time, I I was the minority in the church. God calls me to lead this church of 54 people. And all of a sudden, I'm, I'm being taught by people about life in a way that I, I was completely unaware of, and I've been on this 28-year journey where I'm still, I'm, you know, most of the people in our congregation would say that I am a messenger to them from God, but what I've learned is so many of them have become a messenger of God to me and have expanded my life in ways that are just, well, it's just, uh, they're angels, from God in my life, and let me tell you a story, I, I tell this cautiously, I, I, because of the sensitivities around this subject, let's be frank, uh, when we talk about race in particular, now when I talk about diversity, I'm talking about a lot more than that, but, but but let me let me talk about that just for a moment. When we talk about it, it, it's, it's, it we, we have to be so careful, we can offend each other in so many ways, and, 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 and God have mercy. That's the last thing in the world I want to do. So when I tell a story like I'm about to tell, I'll run it by people on my team who come from different backgrounds that I do and say, hey, am I missing something as a white guy from Indiana here uh, it, when I go share this other places? Uh, and uh, I, so this, this, this got checked off, all right? Meaning they said this is good. So last Monday, is everybody okay? You feel awkward? All right, I do a little, all right? But I think it's still just a Yankees thing, all right? I don't think it's anything else, just that. All right, so last week I had an amazing experience. I had lunch with a woman named Frances Hesselbein. I need to tell this quickly. Frances Hesselbein, although I could talk about it all day. Frances Hesselbein is a a legend in the leadership world. She broke the glass ceiling when it came to women in leadership uh, when she was the first woman on the cover of Business Week magazine. Uh, She was was CEO of the Girl Scouts of America for like uh, 20 years. She transformed the Girl Scouts into the organization it is today. Francis uh, received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, our nation's highest civilian award, from uh, President Bill Clinton in the mid '90s. He called her a pioneer in in uh, women in leadership and in diversity in general. Now, the thing that's fascinating oh, oh and and Francis, if you know anything about leadership, Francis uh, was a protege of Peter F. Drucker, who's called the father of modern management and leadership. And uh, uh, he called Francis the, the best leader he had ever met in his life. And she now has, met, for many years, led his foundation, which has been called, changed from the Peter F. Drucker Foundation to the Francis Hesselbein Foundation. The thing that's so fascinating to me is that she is now 102 years old. And she still goes to work pretty much every day at her Park Avenue offices in New York City. She's an amazing woman. So we had lunch together. She's been a friend of mine over the years. She's spoken at our church. She endorsed my book at books, and she's, she's an amazing woman. We had lunch, and then we sat in her office, and the walls are lined with memorabilia. She's had personal relationships with every U.S. president for generations from both parties. I could go on and on and on, except to say that after this amazing time we had together, that as, we're, as I'm getting ready to leave, I'm, I'm walking out the door, and behind she says, wait a minute, I want to show you something. And she digs behind the door through some poster boards, most of which were celebrating some huge event in her life. And there are a lot of them. But she pulls out a poster board, and it's a, it's, a, it's a picture of the staff of a camp that she led in 1951 in Pennsylvania. Think about how long ago 1951 was. This is a decade before Dr. Martin Luther King showed up and changed the world. Uh, there was still so much segregation in this country. And she said to me, and it's, we'd been talking about diverse, and inclusion, which is, which is a subject of importance to both of us and that we've both written about. And, and, and she, she said, uh, in, in 1951, I couldn't take any of my black friends to any restaurant in this uh, neighborhood Now, I'll play the video here in just a moment. Guys, get ready for the sound. The, the, I think the next video is the one I encourage you to loop. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but she said she, so she points on this thing to three African American women, as uh, and and she talks about how that in a in a world full of segregation, that these three women were leaders on her staff, and one of them her best friend. Let's just play the video real quickly. I want you to hear her voice, a hundred and two year old woman. And the Say thing this. that's so amazing about that is, you said in 1952 there wasn't there wasn't a place that you could take a black guest. To dinner any place in the United States? Couldn't. Right over here. All these nice restaurants. I couldn't. But that was your camp staff when you were directing? My camp staff. Where you have. Here you have the assistant camp director. And my best friend, Rose Hankins, here is the person responsible for all of the food, and Rose was one of the, there were three remarkable people who were black and on this camp staff. Wow. And yet... Now look, there are a million of illustrations I could share with you about this from my personal experience. I'm sharing this, I guess, because I just experienced it last Monday. But here's what I was struck by. Here's a woman who, who, who the last thing she wanted to say to me was this is something incredibly important to me and she knew as a woman who had broken glass ceilings when women were not welcomed into leadership in the way that they presently are, she had a passion to welcome people who were not being welcomed. People who were not like her and she was willing to risk in some ways everything to to be someone who broke down the kind of barriers that stood between people. It just occurred to me that this this is what philoxenia means. It means to love loving strangers. It's not about toleration. Toleration is a low bar, right? It's not about toleration. It's about love. It's it's about... It's about a stranger becoming a messenger from God. It's about intentionality. It's about passion around what it means like to do life with people who are not like you. So let me say this before I get to the next point. You know, So that's race, but let's talk about this in other ways because there are many other ways to discuss it. What would happen if we looked at every stranger and assumed they were a messenger from God? God has spoken to me time and time again through people who are not like me in a number of ways like the beautiful woman who contracted AIDS through a dirty needle she used to sustain her heroin addiction, who came to our church immediately after being released from jail for prostitution to support her heroin addiction. I would visit her, Myrna, in the hospital as she was dying, and she would whisper words of encouragement to me. She was an angel who taught me how to suffer graciously. Or like the wife of a multimillionaire Wall Street animal, Someone unlike me who practiced a rare servant leadership and taught me how to leverage privilege to serve others. Or like the Jewish community leader in my town who taught me how to shake things up to care for the poor. Or the former Black Panther who sat through three of my welcome to the church teaching rotations because he couldn't bring himself to trust a guy like me, but he knew God was calling him to be a part of our church, and so he got to know Me until he learned he could trust me. He taught me how to risk trusting people who I might have reason to be suspicious of. Or, like the first generation immigrant who taught me how to prepare for my children's future. I watched him start with nothing and go on to earn a doctorate while raising his two children to be a medical doctor and a lawyer. Or, like the sanitation worker who was orphaned and grew up on the mean streets of Patterson, New Jersey. He taught me how to love my kids with the passion of someone who had never had a dad and mom or the Polish Catholic man whose world was rocked by Jesus late in life and who loved our church so much that he would sit in his car on our undeveloped church property and pray at 5 o'clock in the morning. The police would run him off the property. He taught me how to approach God with simple faith and expectation and to love our church enough to sacrifice for it every day in every way each of those people were strange to me and I was strange to them but God used them to be messengers of God in my life. Here's the second key to unlocking the power of welcoming strangers. It's to expand your influence by welcoming strangers. I'll be quick with this Regardless of your thoughts about Christianity, if you're a leader, you should want to study the leadership practices of Jesus and his earliest followers because they inarguably led the most powerful movement in the history of the world. And when you study the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, he is constantly doing ministry in some hospitable context. Uh, I, I write about that at great length. But part of what Jesus did to change the world is that he, he resisted the way way things were in the world when he ate with people unlike him to bring someone to the table was a huge thing in the law of hospitality in scripture Jesus, for instance, famously ate with tax collectors and flagrant sinners. Jewish religious leaders were scandalized by this. Why, they asked him, do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, tax collectors at that time, as you know, were not like IRS agents. That's challenging enough. Tax collectors in that day were like the mafia, the mob. It was like Jesus was seen having dinner frequently with Tony Soprano. Uh, He had dinner with flagrant prostitutes. It was one thing, even for a male religious leader at that time to have dinner with a woman, but but at his table would be women who had reputations that weren't so great. It scandalized everyone that Jesus welcomed people completely other than him to his circle of fellowship. See, Jesus, the only sinless man who ever lived, hung out with sinners. Now he hung out with sinners, not just to have a good time, though in fact it appears that they did have a good time, subject for another day. But he hung out with them because he wanted to bring them transformative truth that would change their life, and you cannot influence people who you have not welcomed. And see, one of my concerns about the Christian church in this country is that we are contributing to the polarization of everything. Because if we're not careful, we become truth yellers instead of welcoming to people who learn to trust us and learn to hear truth from us. somehow or another, the church has got to stand up and say, we are not going to participate in the mess of this world. We're going to try to bring healing to this world. See, you can't influence people who you have not welcomed. And this is a problem that's happening. You just see it all. You see it in politics. You see it all. Everybody's speaking to their base. And to me, it's such a disaster because the only way you multiply your influence is to invite people who have not already been invited. See, every empty seat at the table is an opportunity missed. And for people in the church, we have to posture ourselves in a way where we are constantly saying to people unlike us, you are welcome here. Why? Because we want them to hear us speak truth. Now you can't speak truth to people, small t truth, unless you've welcomed them. This may be a husband or wife speaking truth to their spouse about what they feel, what they're experiencing, what they need. You can't speak truth when you're on opposite sides of the house yelling at each other, right? You got to create an environment where someone can sit down and can actually listen to you speak your truth. But more importantly, the stakes are so high for people of Christian faith in today's world because we don't just have small t truth to speak. We have capital T truth to speak. We have the truth of Jesus, the way, the truth, the life, the only way we can come to the Father. And there's a world of people who need to hear the truth that will set them free. But they will not hear it unless we welcome them to the table. And see, Jesus didn't just do the right thing when he welcomed people who weren't like him. He did the smart thing. Because you can't expand, expand your influence unless you're welcoming people who need to receive your influence effort. And, 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 and so he didn't just welcome completely people completely other than him. He also welcomed women in a way that women had never been welcomed in the history of the world. He had women on his leadership team. When you study the New Testament properly, this becomes very clear. And and, and this is continued in the New Testament church where roughly half of the households that are mentioned by the Apostle Paul as a part of infrastructure in New Testament church leadership were led by women. This was unheard of. See, but that wasn't just because it was the right thing to do. It was also the smart thing to do because when Jesus reached women, he doubled, more than doubled, his influence. People who had been sidelined were now welcomed to become a part of the mission and to expand the influence of the mission through the world. And not only that, but the New Testament church which was was exclusively Jewish for the first decade or so, fought to welcome Gentiles. It wasn't just the right thing to do, it was the smart thing to do. All of a sudden you're multiplying influence because people who weren't there are now there and they're going out and they're sharing the gospel. Or think about how radical it was that slaves were welcomed to the table and taught and, and, and treated as brothers and sisters to everyone else who was sitting at the table of leadership, Slavery then wasn't what it has been over the last couple hundred years in our understanding, but there was a significant divide between the slave and the free. But but now all of a sudden, we're constantly expanding the influence of Christianity by welcoming people who've never been welcomed before. This is why Paul would say, hey guys, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. Jesus and here's the third thing is everybody okay can you give me like two and a half more minutes that's fine I understand no I'm kidding here's the third way to unlock the power of welcoming strangers it's to move from hostility to hospitality The kind of hospitality I'm talking about offers resistance to the way things are in this sometimes very inhospitable world. We all know that on a grand scale things seem to just not be working. The very environment around us feels charged with an almost tangible negativity. Polarization is a word that we hear constantly. Uh, And I don't like the word, but it's an apt description of the atmosphere invading our politics and our discussions around class, gender, race, religion, and more. The great Henry Nowen said that we need to move from hostility to hospitality. See, hospitality says we're not going to stand here and yell at each other. We're going to welcome one another. We're going to break bread together. We're going to have a conversation. I'm going to love you even and especially if you are strange to me. And see, when we welcome each other like that, like you beautiful Folks here at Inspire Church are doing. We participate in a vision that God has for creating one new humanity. Look at this passage. Let's talk. Let me close by talking about how we should welcome each other who are a part of the family of faith. In Paul's letters to the Ephesians, he speaks about how through Jesus, God had torn down the dividing wall of hostility that had stood between Jews and Gentiles for several thousand years. And he says that God's purpose was to create one new humanity. Ephesians 2, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. You who were strangers, essentially, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. He put to death their hostility consequently you were no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with god's people it's hard for us to understand how much in the first century when this was written jews and gentiles as two people groups hated each other we could take quite a bit of time unpacking how much they hated each other now there were Necessary relationships that happened, but they fundamentally hated each other in ways that we've seen played out over the last 2,000 years. The Holocaust, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a subset of Gentiles hating Jews to the point of trying to wipe them off the face of the earth. In the first century, it went both ways. It was Jew to Gentile. It was Gentile to Jew. And the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians and said, listen, there is this dividing wall of hostility that stands between Jew and Gentile But Jesus came to tear that wall down. And to create out of two entirely different people groups, one new humanity. And the idea was that if God could tear down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, that God could tear down the dividing wall of hostility between any two people, between any two people groups, between people from different backgrounds of any type. Jesus came to tear down the wall of hostility. I wonder, because we're all human beings, who what individual, when you hear their name or you see them, do you feel a wall go up. I wonder what group of people when you see them or hear their name, you feel a wall go up. I wonder what happens when you know that somebody that you go to tribe meeting with or small groups with perhaps has different views on some political issue than you do, a brother or sister in Christ who seems strange to you because it's incomprehensible that they wouldn't see things the way you do. I bet you sometimes that you feel walls go up, don't you? It's a normal part of our human nature, but in fact, it's a part of our sin nature because when Jesus came on the cross, he came to tear those walls down. He came to tear them down to where we can do life with people unlike us, maybe in every way except that we believe in Jesus and the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word. I'm out of time. God bless you. Thank you.